Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 44th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Amy Finkelstein, co-author of the book, Risky Business, Why Insurance Markets Fell and What to Do About It. Unraveling the Mysteries of Insurance Markets. This book explores the issues as why insurers want to know so much about us and whether we should let them obtain this information. Why insurance entrepreneurs often fail and some tricks that might help them succeed and whether we'd be better off with government-mandated health insurance instead of letting businesses, customers and markets decide who gets coverage and at what price. With insurance at the centre of divisive debates about privacy, equity and the appropriate role of government, this book offers clear explanations for some of the critical business and policy issues you've often wondered about, as well as for others you haven't yet considered. It was great discussing the book with Amy, and I hope you enjoy the episode. The first thing I actually want to ask you is, what brought your fascination, Amy, with insurance? That's a great question because, you know, one of the challenges and also opportunities we faced in writing a book about insurance is uh, most people don't realize how exciting insurance is. In fact, I dare say probably most people think of it as somewhere between uninteresting to boring to aggravating. But my own fascination with insurance uh, arises in two parts. First, because if you think about modern life, you know, whether you're thinking about the risk of disease or death or natural disaster, insurance offers something really amazing. It offers a hope for a modicum of security and certainty in a, in a dangerous and uncertain world. My own interest in insurance as an economist came out of the fact that despite what, you know, the cartoon version of economics as, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hands and the magic of the markets, that in fact, insurance uh, is one of those markets that often fails to deliver on its promise to provide security and uncertainty. And few people understand why. As I said, most people see insurance as one of life's mundane necessities, but it's actually incredibly fascinating. And if you don't realize why insurance markets fail to work, you you kind of do so at your own peril. So that's what motivated us to write the book. Hmm. And one word which stuck out to me from the moment I heard it within the earlier chapters, right the way through to the end of the book, is selection. Why is selection such an integral part when it comes to insurance? What we mean by selection is that it matters to people or businesses that sell insurance which customers they attract, which customers select their product. So, you know, General Mills does not care who buys its Cheerios. General Mills's profits depends on how much Cheerios it sells, not who it sells it to. But that is very much not the case for in a selection market like an insurance market. If you're selling life insurance or disaster insurance or auto insurance or health insurance, your profits, your costs, and hence your profits depend very much on whether you get the accident-prone risky customers or the safe uh, low-risk customers. And the problem is because 
and somewhat remarkably, even in the modern information age when insurers have mounds of data and armies of sophisticated actuaries, it turns out that they're not able to figure out from their customers who's likely to be high cost and who's likely to be low cost, or at least not figure out everything that the customer knows. And so what can happen and what does happen is that it's the high cost customers who find the product more attractive and they flood the market, which drives up the cost to the businesses of providing the insurance and drives up the price then for everyone. This can make the market actually completely spiral out of control and disappear, or it can just make it substantially restricted and uh, limited. So if you've ever wondered why you can't buy divorce insurance for love or money or layoff insurance, if you've wondered why dental insurance is so limited and, dare I say, crummy, why pet insurance is so expensive, why your auto insurer wants to know your credit rating, these are all consequences of the problem of selection. Mm, the skeptic in me wanted to know why doesn't a divorce insurance exist, especially considering so many marriages end in divorce anyway. Exactly. And that's why it could be valuable to all of us. And in fact, several companies, as we discuss in the book, have tried at various points to offer divorce insurance. Uh, you know, a company called Wedlock Insurance offered the policy and then it withdrew from the market. And it's kind of a little obvious why once you think about it, which is, yes, we could all benefit from divorce insurance, even those of us who enter, as hopefully most of us do, our marriage with very optimistic expectations for the future. And it's a huge potential market. There's 2 million marriages a year in the United States, and unfortunately, many of them do not survive. The problem that Wedlock discovered is that when you offer divorce insurance, the couples who are already squabbling on or shortly after their wedding day are more likely to buy it so that the people who buy it have above average risk of divorce. And that increases the costs, which puts it out of the realm of a useful product for those of us who just have the run-of-the-mill average risk of divorce. You see this with pet insurance as well. The prices for pet insurance, so that's a market that hasn't been destroyed completely, but I don't think anyone who's tried to buy pet insurance thinks it functions well. So we talk about in the book, for example, if you're trying to buy a policy for, I think it's your 12-year-old your bulldog, the annual premium for pet insurance is $4,300 a year. And that's where it, here's the kicker, that's for a policy that has a annual cap on benefits of $5,000 per year. Now, why does that come about? You might say, oh, those, those awful insurance companies are just ripping off customers. But no, what's actually happening is that when you offer pet insurance, the people who tend to buy it are the people who, it's not just that they know that, you know, Rover is, you know, sicker than you might think a typical 12-year-old bulldog is, but they know that if or when Rover starts to have issues, they're the kind of customer who's going to want to pull out all the stops and really try to save him rather than say, oh, he had a nice life, you know, let him go peacefully. So they're going to be expensive customers from the point of view of the insurer, and that drives up the cost to the insurer and therefore drives up the price. And the reason that's a problem is it makes it hard for those of us who are less expensive customers to be able to get the insurance and the security and protection that it could otherwise provide. Why are the premiums of selection something 
not often discussed in free markets? That's a good question. You know, as I said, I think most people have heard the cartoon view of economics, of the magic of the markets and Adam Smith's invisible hand. And I think most of us, many people realize, though, that that is a cartoon version, that the reasons that governments get involved for firms that are polluting, they get involved for bank runs and regulation of financial markets. We know that the market can create great inequality and inequity, and so governments get involved to do redistribution. I can't tell you why selection hasn't achieved sort of the awareness in the public consciousness that it really needs to, and that's sort of why we're writing the book. But I can certainly tell you that we became convinced that it had not, and that was the motivation for writing the books. And one of the aha moments for us, you know, we're insurance junkies, so to us this is second nature, but it was kind of shocking to be listening to the oral arguments in the Supreme Court case about the constitutionality of the mandate under Obamacare that everyone have health insurance. I know nothing about constitutional law. I'm an economist. So whether or not it's constitutional is above or below my pay grade. But what what really struck us in listening to the oral arguments was when then Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia asked during cross-examination, well, if it's okay for a government to mandate that individuals buy health insurance, can we also mandate that people eat their broccoli. Now, he was known for his rhetorical flourishes. I'm sure Justice Scalia understood the difference between broccoli and health insurance. But the fact that he was able to sort of score rhetorical points with that comments suggested to us that, in fact, many smart, well-informed people might not be top of mind what is the difference. And at the risk of stating the obvious, Both broccoli and insurance are things that most people find unappealing, but what is actually very different about them is that, once again, the cost to the supermarket of selling broccoli do not depend on which customers buy their broccoli. So that can be a well-functioning market, whereas the cost to a health insurer of who buys their health insurance very much depends on who buys it. So if governments decide to mandate against insurance selection problems, What could it possibly help to rectify, would you say? So when a mandate for insurance comes in, our first reaction is, oh, this can be the textbook solution to a selection problem. Um, But then it turns out the textbooks and the real world, there's a little bit, you know, they don't have in common. So the reason it can be a solution is, remember the problem as I described it, is that we could all benefit from insurance because we all would prefer to pay, or most of us would prefer to pay a small amount of money for sure, that's the premium, in order to get the coverage and the protection against a large catastrophic financial risk, like a large healthcare expenditure or a large uh, destruction of one's automobile or one's home. And so, but the reason these markets can fall apart is precisely because customers know things about how risky they are that the insurer doesn't, and then the risky ones come into the market and drive up the price for all of it. So, so a mandate can solve that problem by requiring everyone to be in the market and getting rid of selection because no one gets to select. And that is what happens. And we, as we discuss in the book, we saw this play out with the Obamacare mandate that people come into the market and it's disproportionately the healthier customers who are coming in. So the mandate is doing what it's supposed to. However, as we also discuss in the book, and it was a little humbling to us, you know, as, as you know, uh, economists uh, and, and insurance junkies to, to realize this, that in practice, though, there are at least two 
problems uh, with mandates in practice that you know our sort of standard textbook models tend not to uh, address. The, the first is the rather prosaic yet important issue of enforcement, right? So we currently have a mandate in the United States that everyone have health insurance. And I think most of your uh, listeners know, however, everyone in the U.S. does not currently have health insurance, right? So as we talk about in the book, it's like the old Robin Williams joke about the police in England. So the police there don't carry guns. So he deadpans, they're going to shout, stop, or I'll say stop again, right? So a mandate is only part of the solution. You have to say, how are we going to enforce the mandate? And you can do that through sticks, like fines and penalties, or carrots, like subsidies to get people to buy, and, and then that becomes a whole separate set of public policy issues. The other problem with a mandate is, yes, if you mandate it and enforce it, everyone will have coverage, but in some sense you're kicking the can down the road a little bit because then you have to think about, well, what should the government mandate? If it mandates that everyone have the most comprehensive insurance policy ever, that may be more insurance than some people want to buy. Some people, you know, at some point, certainty gets old and maybe we're willing to, you know, incur a little risk in order to have more money to do other things with right now. On the other hand, if you take a very minimalist approach, and we talk about in the case of auto insurance, you have the whole range from, I think, Florida is at the very minimal end, Maine is at the very uh, aggressive end. If you take a very minimal approach and say we're only going to require a very small amount of insurance, then what you see happening is you just recreate the whole selection problem, but now in the market for additional insurance. So once again, if you're a low-risk driver, but you just don't want to be unprotected, you're going to find that by Buying any non-mandated coverage can be quite expensive. And there was this insurance program that was mentioned in the book. And was this like some kind of experiment where everyone had insurance without uh, some sort of selection? Is that correct, Amy? Can you tell me a little bit more about which example you had in mind? Was that the Medicare example? Uh, ah, so I think what you're thinking about, so in Medicare, which is health insurance for individuals 65 and older, there's an option to buy uh, private Medicare insurance called Medicare Advantage. And there's also an option if you stay with the public Medicare, traditional Medicare program, to buy supplemental coverage. That's probably what you're thinking of that the Medigap program, and insurers have to offer it to everyone for the first six months after they turn 65, but then they can decide what to do based on, you know, people's health conditions, their age, etc. And so that's an example where people may choose not to buy it when they're 65, uh, the supplemental insurance, because they're healthy and don't, don't want to spend the money. And then unfortunately, when they get sick, they no longer can. So, you know, one of the one of the lessons we talk about in the book is the purpose of insurance is protection. You can't wait till the event occurs that you want protection against to buy the insurance. Relatedly, if you've been buying comprehensive health insurance or auto insurance for years and never had an auto accident, you shouldn't think, man, I've been ripped off by my insurance company. You should think, wow, I'm so glad I've never had an auto accident. And also, all those years I didn't have an accident, I did have the peace of mind of knowing that if I did, I was going to have some financial protection against it. 
Yeah, the, the quote that um, I noted in the later part of the book was the whole purpose of insurance is that you're supposed to buy it to ins- insure against a possible event or risk not to pay for that eventuality after it happens. So exactly. you hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> yes, and I, we have a bit of fun in the book, or I had a bit of fun, you know, using as, an, as a cautionary tale my, my hapless husband who, when he was in graduate school, and naturally, as a graduate student, is trying to be frugal and save his money. He bought the sort of bare bones towing insurance from AAA. But then, when his car broke down, he wanted to be towed to his, you know, home to his childhood mechanic, who I think was 18 miles away. And his towing only called for, you know, would tow him within 10 miles. So he called from the side of the road and asked to upgrade to the platinum AAA plan. And they said, right away, sir, you know, yes, sir, what's your credit card number, sir? And then as he was breathing a sigh of relief, they said, that's great. We'll start charging you now. And that policy will be in effect in two weeks, right? Because (laughs) waiting periods are one of the ways that insurers try to deal with the selection issue. And but again, they're not, they don't come for free. The problem is, forget my husband and his shenanigans, if, if you just wanted to buy platinum AAA coverage and then you happen to have an accident in the next two weeks, you wouldn't have that coverage. So these waiting periods are a way to try and help markets survive despite selection, but they come at the cost of less insurance protection. Mm-hmm. And even though these waiting periods do exist, so say for instance, when it comes to like life cover as well, right? How do customers still find ways around it? Because they surely do, don't they? Yes, it's a really good question. Another way of asking the the question is, how is it that customers can still know something about how risky they are that the insurer, as we talked about, all its data, all its sophistication doesn't know? We talk about this at length in the book, and in some cases, we can give examples based on anecdotes. So, you know, we give the example when I was in graduate school and I bought a car and I went to buy insurance, the insurer looked at me and saw that I'd had a license for 10 years and had had a spotless record. And so I got a terrific price on my auto insurance. What, What they didn't know, but what I knew and anyone who drove with me quickly found out is that I'm a terrible driver. And the only reason I had a spotless driving record is that I hadn't driven for the first 10 years that I had my license. I'd gotten it as a kid in growing up in Manhattan where no one drove, but my mother told me, oh, get that license. It'll be a useful form of identification. And I hadn't used it for 10 years. So we have, you know, of course that, that cuts both ways. We also tell the story of my co-author, Laurent, who's had a car that was passed from his older son to his younger son when the older one went to college. And that was had been the deal for years. And the older son was no longer allowed to drive it, but because he was at college within 100 miles of where his parents lived, to the insurer, you know, Laurent now had two teenage boys on driving his car, and that sent his rates through the roof, and he couldn't explain that, no, in fact, he only had one teenage boy driving his car. So this information cuts both ways, and that's an anecdote. We also give some scientific evidence from several studies. One of my favorites is a study that looks at people with risk of a, of a genetic disease they're called Huntington's chorea that they know that they have a 50% risk of getting because it's a dominant gene and their parent had it. And that if you, if you have it, uh, often you're going to end up in a nursing home for 15, 20 years. It's a terrible uh, degenerative disease. And uh, an economist named Emily Oster and her co-authors you know, did a really fascinating study where they show that people whose parents have, uh, have had Huntington's chorea are more likely to buy nursing home insurance than, than other people in the population. And moreover, 
once people who ha whose parents suffer from this or suffered from this get a genetic test for the disease, you kind of win or lose the genetic lottery of a 50-50 chance. The ones who find that they have the disease are then even more likely to buy nursing home insurance. So in some cases, we can point to a very specific type of private information. But as we also discuss in the book, in other cases, it's stunning. You can see it in the data that the people buying life insurance, for example, end up having uh, much higher death rates than the people who don't. And yet, it's honestly not clear to us what it is that they know that the insurer doesn't. Insurers take very detailed family uh, histories, medical histories. They actually conduct their own medical exams. They ask about your lifestyle, you know, whether you smoke, whether you scuba dive, whether you travel to dangerous places. So there it is really a mystery how it is that people manage to maintain this private information. And yet we can see very much in the data that they do and we can see the consequences of it as well. For lack of a better term, dare I say, it's almost like it's a game of cat and mouse because even in the book, you did mention how, I think this was in the early 2000s, insurance company would add uh, a gym membership with its life insurance or be located on like the fifth floor, you know, to try and find out things about the customer or to attract the customer that I actually wants. Yes, for sure. I mean, for now, we've talked mostly about ways that insurance companies can try to make their products less appealing, like a waiting period to try and deter the customers they don't want. The other thing we talk about in the book, and it's, I'm glad you mentioned it, it's one of my favorite examples of things insurance companies do to try to make their products more appealing to the customers they do want. And one of the best examples is, you know, uh, health insurers will, will sometimes bundle their offer of health insurance with a discounted membership to a gym. You might think that it's because, uh, you know, they want you to stay healthy and going to a gym will make you healthier. Uh, unfortunately, that, you know, I encourage everyone to go to a gym, but that, that's not why they do it. Again, you can see in the data when they offer these discounted gym memberships, they attract customers who before they ever start potentially going to the gym are already uh, healthier than, than not. And the idea is that if, who is a gym membership going to appeal to? The people who can at least delude themselves into thinking they're really gonna work out twice a week, uh, as opposed to people who are already quite ill and know that there's no way they're going to go to a gym. And we see in the data that actually when insurers offer you know a discount on your gym membership, if you buy this health insurance product, they tend to attract healthier customers. Lastly, what other markets are affected by selection do you have an interest in and may potentially write about in the future? Because hopefully this book will become part of a trilogy, right? <laughs> it was a little tongue in cheek, but it is true that while we find insurance fascinating and hopefully this discussion and reading the book will help convince many other people of both the, the promise and the perils in insurance markets. Selection is a problem that plagues other markets as well. Insurance is perhaps the most prominent example, but any market for a loan, when you want to get a loan from your bank or a credit card, again, the, the 
bank has to worry about what the chance is that the customer will pay back the loan. The credit card company has to worry about what's the risk that you won't pay your credit card bill. We talk in the epilogue of the book about one particular really interesting example of this, which is the idea of uh, income sharing agreements for loans to help make college more affordable to people, which is on average going to college is very good for your lifetime earnings, but it varies a lot across people. Some people make a lot of money after college, some people make less. The way student loans currently work, you have to pay back as a function of the tuition that was paid for or loaned to you, not based on your, and some people, what, what happens if you take out a lot of loans because you go to an expensive college and then you end up not making much money. So there's long been an interest in economics about sort of income sharing agreements in which the amount you have to pay back is higher if you earn more money and that could provide some insurance against going to college and then not going into a high earning career. And yet there's been some fascinating recent work suggests, well, that market barely or doesn't exist, depending on which second you happen to be looking at it. And there's been some fascinating work suggesting that's precisely because, again, even clueless 18-year-olds heading off to college, it turns out, have a fair amount of private information about even given what major they're going to choose, whether they're likely to be, you know, a high earner or a low earner. Loans are another major example of this. And also the job market. If you think about an employer trying to hire a worker, the worker has all kinds of private information about how hardworking they are, how competent they are, how reliable they are. And that's another example where you can get real problems of selection. So those are some of the examples we might cover in the sequel. That was Amy Finkelstein, co-author of the book Risky Business, Why Insurance Markets Fell and What to Do About It. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Amy for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.